0: Isaiah 59
1: is our text today, Isaiah 59, in verses 1 through 3, let's read that, I'm going to actually study, we're going to study the whole of the chapter,
0: Isaiah 59
1: beginning at verse 1, Isaiah continues to speak to his people. And coming through a time of, of instruction due to their lack of, of following the proper fast before the Lord in, in chapter 58. And of their approach to the Sabbath as, as they had uh, not honored the Lord properly in the Sabbath. Now the prophet and actually the Lord is speaking through the prophet and saying behold the The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. It is amazing to me how much of a society of blame we have become. What I mean by that is how quick people are in casting blame on others. For example, one political party blames the other over all the problems in the country. Right? Over 20 years ago, Ronald Reagan was blamed by the then liberal media for the for the AIDS epidemic, as if he single-handedly brought the infection over to this country himself. President Bush is blamed for everything from the war to airline cancellations to acne. And we've done our best to blame people for things that we think they've done. But of course, over a generation or so ago, the Jews were blamed for all of the economic problems in post-World War I Germany that that a tremendous anti-Semitism arose, fueled by a short Austrian-born troublemaker named Adolf Hitler and his demonically poisoned testament to Aryan resurgence, a book called Mein Kampf, My Struggle. As sad as that was, The Jewish people were no strangers to blame. In fact, this chapter itself focuses on the blame that they were placing on their own God for all the troubles that they were in, while ignoring the real problem for their predicament, their own sin. The children of Israel wondered why the Lord didn't seem to want to rescue them from their trials, wondering whether He had diminished in strength or or lacked interest by not wanting to hear them. And so we find in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Why does he have to say that? Because it was in their hearts and minds to think, God's hand is too short to save us. And he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. And so the implication was that they were thinking in their minds and in their hearts that God wasn't hearing them because of lack of interest. So the prophet is assuring them that this isn't the case at all. He is saying to them, in essence, that God's arm isn't so short that he can't reach out to help them. Neither is he so hard of hearing that he can't make out what they're saying. The word behold is very important here. The word behold signifies the necessity for God's people to open their eyes to the reality check that is being given to them. You're blaming God. But the problem isn't God. The problem is your sin. It isn't that God lacks power or that He is not interested in their plight. He's strong enough and He hears just fine. Don't blame God. The problem... Is you. Look at verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Interesting when you read that. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was a statement in essence, saying, God, why have you turned your face from me? And it wasn't so much that the, the father was turning his face from his own son, but he was turning his face from the sin that his son was bearing for all the world. The sin problem. The sin issue. Interesting. Sin had separated them from God. You see, this, this, should, this should answer the question that is posed by so many today. How can there be a God of love and all power when, when there is so much human suffering in the world? If, if we, if we love someone and have the power to end their suffering, wouldn't we do it? A few years ago, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his premise was that, that God is all loving but not all-powerful. That was his premise. God is loving, but he's not all-powerful. He's good, but he's not sovereign. If bad things happen to good people, it is because things are out of his control. This is a rabbi.
0: His advice was this.
1: Learn to love God and and forgive Him in spite of His limitations. That's a rabbi? May, May I say that he missed the boat on two particular things that are actually one particular thing? He missed the boat on this? First of all, there are no good people. The Bible says that very clearly. There are no good. And second... He left out completely the sin issue. You see, it was God's fault. It's God's fault. Not man's. The Bible says God gave man everything. The opportunity to have life. And man chose death. And with death, of course, came sin. And with sin came death. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It teaches us that great doctrine of of the depravity of man. The utter depravity of man. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, quoting from The Psalms and the Proverbs, he writes, there is none righteous, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is none who does good, no, not one. These are scriptures that Rabbi Kushner knew when he wrote his book. But Paul also says in Romans 3.23, when he sums this all up, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, not some, not a few, not many, not most. He says, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. You see, the problem is with man's iniquities that separate from God. God did not want to be separate from His creation. He did not want to be separate from those that He created in His own image. Now let me say that sin doesn't necessarily separate from the presence of God. Since God is omnipresent. Even Satan had an audience with God. You remember in Job chapter 1 verse 6. We're told now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. So it isn't that sin necessarily separates from the presence of God. But sin... Does separate. Sin doesn't separate us from the love of God, since God loves sinners, but it does separate us from God's fellowship. Here's a good list to, to write down Sin separates us from God's fellowship, sin separates us from God's blessings, it separates us from God's loving benefits, and it separates us from God's protection. Now, God is also merciful, and God has been very merciful many times, even when we've walked away from Him. But He has kept His hand upon us, because we, at one time, made a commitment to the Lord, we're going to follow You, Lord. Yeah, we've stumbled, we've fallen, and He's allowed certain things to happen, so that He might chastise and bring us back to Him. But there is some protection. But, but you have to see the overall picture here. What, what is being said to His people here. The fellowship with God, the blessings of God, the loving benefits of God, the protection of God. The prodigal son, by the way, in Luke chapter 15, serves as a good example of all of these points that were lost by the prodigal when he left with his inheritance from his father's house. He was separated from his father's fellowship due to his own desires. He no longer wanted to stay in his home. He wanted his inheritance so he could go out and spend it on, on whatever he wanted to. He wanted to be boss. He was separated from his father's blessings for no longer trusting in him and relying on him. He wanted to be self-reliant. How many people today want to be self-reliant? i got to get out of my mother's and father's house as quick as I can. I can't stand there any longer. How old are you, 10? <laughs> Sounds crazy, doesn't it? He was separated from his father's loving benefits in that that even though his father still loved him, and and we know he did, he didn't enjoy the benefits of that love and his father's protection, couldn't keep him from his self-imposed sufferings. What did he end up being? Working in a pig farm, eating the pig's food. A good Jew, living in the uncleanness, Of a pig's sty. Why wasn't the face of the Lord shining on them any longer? Simply, it was their sins. The Lord said, if you love me and and follow me and obey me all the days of your life, I'll bless you, I'll keep you, I'll protect you, I'll watch over you. But when you begin to be like all the people in all the other nations surrounding you, and you want to be like them, and you want to adopt their, their ways, and you want to have their kinds of kings, and you want to have their kinds of gods, and all of that, I've, I've got to let go. I will love you. But you've disobeyed me. It was their sins. It says, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You, do you notice it, it isn't that he cannot hear, it is that he will not hear. What a difference. It didn't mean that God couldn't hear him, he wouldn't hear them. He chose to ignore their prayers because they didn't deal with the sin in their own hearts. And they had every opportunity. Folks, don't, don't make it think, don't, don't, don't think in your own mind that they never had an opportunity to change. He gave them constant opportunities to follow Him, to love Him, to serve Him. Yes, He had His, his, his remnant. He had His people that, that shined forth, you know, that wouldn't go in the direction that the others were going. But it was an overall picture of a people who had everything they, they, they could have possibly wanted to have if they would have just simply obeyed their God, who loved them. He chose to ignore their prayers because they didn't deal with a sin in their own hearts. Sin hindered their prayers, but it didn't have to be so. Consider the heart of David, which they should have known. These are things they should have known. Psalm 66 verse 18. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I, I love the, the English Standard Version of Psalm 66 18. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think the NIV refers to cherishing iniquity as well. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. David understood. And he taught that to his people. And he wrote it down as one of the Psalms that these children of Israel had. Had they ever given the Lord an opportunity to point out what needed to be changed in their lives and hearts? Folks, I'm asking that question because I want you to ask the same question. Have we given the Lord an opportunity to point out what needs to be changed in our lives and in our hearts? You see, David prayed once again. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. Search me, O God. It's as if he stands before God alone, without anyone else around. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. God already knows our hearts, doesn't He? But there is that sense that we have to stand before God and say, God, here it is. Here's my heart. Open wide for you to see. Try me. In other words, test me. And know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. Is there, Lord? It isn't for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's for my benefit. God, show me. Let the light shine so I can see that I need to deal with that sin. If there is any wicked way in me, lead me then in the way everlasting. You know what that says to me, and it should say to all of us? For us to ask God to lead us in the way everlasting is to say, Lord, I want to have eternity stamped on my eyeballs. I want everything to have to do with eternity, not with what's temporal, not with what's just temporary in this life. There's a lot of things that, that, that God blesses us temporarily with, doesn't he? our homes our clothes our cars our food you know we have so much and and we're thankful and we should be thankful we should give thanks every day for the wondrous things that god has given us to live you know how god how good god is he's not only given it given it to believers he's given it to even unbelievers made some people in the bible ask lord how come the, why do why should the why should the righteous perish and the wicked you know prosper <laughs> God's in control of all that, see? God's not out of control of things like like, uh, Rabbi Kushner said. God's in control of all these things. This is His abundant, just general grace that He's given to all the world. But if we know Him, we have that outlet to give thanks. If we know Him, then we can say, Lord, thanks. Thanks. You know, there are people in, in, in countries, I don't say this, put anybody on a guilt trip, I honestly don't. But there are people in, in foreign countries today, and, and, we, and many, some of us have been in those places where people give thanks just for a cup of water. Just for a cup of water. I saw a man in Panama when we were down there a few years ago. Just give thanks. I, I gave him a little gift. And you know he did thank me, but I tell you he went around just thanking the Lord for it. It was one of those super duper, you know, every blade in the world kind of, of Swiss pocket knife. This guy had a knife that uh, you know couldn't have cut a, you know, a feather. I said, "Here, brother, you have this," and I mean he just cried. And he thanked he thanked me, but he thanked the Lord more, of which I'm glad. And he went around cutting everything. <laughs> I mean, that thing had all kinds of gadgets on it, man. He was doing all kinds of stuff. We have everything at our, our disposal. Everything is right there. Bottled water. Man, we, bottled water. We used to drink water out of the, the hose in the summer. Remember that first drink was hot? <sighs> Burn you. Then it tasted like rubber. But you didn't mind it. Once it got cool, oh man. You know. Now we don't, do we give thanks for these things? We need to always be teachable. But never in a place where God can't work with us. We should never put ourselves in a place where God can't work with us. But let's stay teachable. Let's stay teachable. Search me, God. Know me. The prophet Isaiah went on to descriptively point out the sins of God's people. Now, we begin to see the things that they were doing. Verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Sin. In other words, the things you do sinful your tongue has muttered perversity you know that that's a statement that reaches into our own day and time isn't it how many people today even on even on just regular TV mutter perversity just constantly they have a filthy mouth because their mind and their heart's filthy Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. That almost sounds like politics today. Think about it. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Very important statement. Goes into the next verse, they hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments. You see, spiders weave these beautiful webs sometimes. Try to put it on. How deceptive. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are are works of iniquity, and and the act of violence is in their hands. Please keep that thought of the hand in mind because of what it said about the Lord's hand. When it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not what? Shortened that it cannot save. What about man's hands? You see. The act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Verse 3 takes us all the way back to chapter 1 of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 1, verse 15, it says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. You know what the picture is? When you spread out your hands, as if you're worshiping God. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. If you go down to verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 1, it says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers what do murderers do they shed innocent blood and their hands are full of that blood you see god's hand didn't save because their hands were covered with blood god's hand didn't save because their hands were covered with blood they had lifted their hands to worship god but their hands were stained with the blood of their violent evil natures and the very fact is that many times they took the lives of their own people But this wasn't all. The Lord, through His prophet, was exposing a great conflict between truth and lies. You notice the emphasis of truth and lying in this passage. Just as we are seeing today, even in the church, there's a struggle between truth and what's not truth, what is truth and what is false. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. There were those many false prophets in this time that that were were saying to the people, listen, you're fine, everything's okay. God is going to bless you. God is going to prosper you. God is going to take care of you. But they were lying. God says, you've got false teachers among you, giving you false comfort, false hope. I mean, what a testimony to the present condition in our nation as well as in the church. That we're not discerning the lies of people. Especially in the church. You see, God's people lied with ease and regularity. That's what He's saying. God's people The children of Israel were lying with ease and regularity. It came to where they were even asking very similar questions as the serpent did in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Did he really say that? Does he really mean that? Does he really say this? Does he really want you to believe that? Oh, no, no, no. And they would speak lies. But this is the new trend that seeks to minimize, if not wholeheartedly abandoning, the Word of God. Right now, in our very nation, and really in the world, this movement, we've talked about the emerging church, we've talked about those who are putting aside the bible saying you know we got to quit teaching the scriptures and we need to start telling more stories and we need to make feel more people make people feel more comfortable and we will, we don't want to you know arouse their you know their uh their natures or whatever we i mean we want to be nice to them and sweet to them and let them find god in their own way even, even if it's not through christ maybe it's through a, some other way i'm just telling you what some churches are teaching Those of this new evangelicalism, which is really a new liberalism, as it were. As John MacArthur puts it, let me, let me quote from him. He says, uh, this, this new evangelicalism, they are more concerned, he says, with style than substance, more concerned with acceptance and accuracy, more concerned with popularity than with power. Strong doctrine is seen as an enemy of evangelicalism today. They are more concerned with providing people with enjoyment than conviction. And he goes on and on, and I'll just finish with this. He says, and honoring the sinner is more important than honoring the Savior. Honoring the sinner is more important than honoring the Savior. When we stop honoring the Word of God, when we stop reading and studying and believing and trusting in the Word of God, we are honoring the sinner more than we're honoring the Savior. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul said this. He said, for many walk of whom I have told you often... And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. It is these, you know, what should be their shame, by the way? What should be their shame? Abandoning the word of God. If they abandon the word of God, that is their shame. But it has become for them their glory. When they go and tell people you don't need to study the scriptures like those crazy evangelicals over at Calvary Chapel or or whatever other church. You know, you don't need to study the scriptures like that. You know, be free of that. You don't need to study the word. If you abandon the word like that, then your shame has become your glory. That's what Paul was saying. And that's what's happening today. And may God have mercy on the church. And by the way, God loves the church, and we should love the church. We should love it so much that we need to de- we need defend it, as the book of Jude tells us. That We need to contend for the faith that was once for all given unto, all, uh, given unto the saints. We're to contend for the faith. That's a strong word. Those of you that ever box know what it means to contend. Those who are going for a belt are contenders. It's the same word. So, same word. that we get the word "agonize" from? You know, whenever you've seen these contenders boxing for a, for a, for a belt, you know, they've agonized hundreds and hundreds of hours to get to that point where they can win that belt. Even the Apostle Paul talks about boxing and talks about that kind of contending from the physical point as an example of how we have to contend for the faith of Christ. Well, getting back to Isaiah, we need to do that. They were speaking lies and no one, no one was calling for justice. No one was calling for justice. Who's calling for justice today? When we look and see children being abused, when we look and see families going through all the kinds of situations that they're going through and, and, and you know, people getting out, uh, you know, Easy without, without remorse for the, for the things that they've done. No one was calling out for justice. They didn't, they didn't share God's heart for what was fair, for what was good. People were only thinking in terms of their own good, you see. That's the way it is today. People are only thinking in terms of their own good. What's good for me? I don't care what's good for anybody else. You see, that's the, that's the philosophical relativism of this world today. You know, I got my truth, you got your truth. You know, just don't step on my toes. I won't try to step on your toes too much or too hard. But folks, they were even in those days, were thinking in terms of their own good. As Scripture has pointed out many, many times in the book of Judges, chapter 6, 17, verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Time and time again in that book, of judges, you find that statement Isaiah five verse twenty one says "Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, wise in their own eyes. It only matters what what they think and not what anybody else thinks, especially what God thinks. They trusted in empty words, they spoke lies, and they gave birth by the way, this is what the scripture says there. they gave birth to mischief and trouble. Notice the picture of conceiving evil carries into the next illustration, verses 5 and 6. They hatch viper's eggs. So so we go from verse 4, and I I want to make sure you don't miss verse 4 there. When it says they conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Carry that into verse 5. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out their webs will not become garments nor will they cover themselves with their works their works are workers of iniqu- or their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands so in conceiving evil and bringing forth iniquity they were as snakes giving birth to more evil serpents and bringing forth only death so he who eats of their eggs dies either from the venom or the poison And the more evil from that which is crushed, the viper breaks out. So, more evil is conceived and brought forth. The webs mentioned here speak of ensnaring people with their wicked practices, being that they are just too flimsy to weave clothing out of them. In other words, they serve no good purpose but to entangle and to trap. That's all they do. The web is to entangle, it is to trap, it is to catch. How many people are getting caught into this web of of deceptions and lies today because they're not discerning. And I'm speaking about people in the church. They're not discerning these evil things because their mind and their heart is not in God's word in a constant, continual basis. And then in verses 7 and 8 it says, Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their desire... Now is is not for good. Now it's for evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. That's a tremendous thought to me. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. They not only want to destroy things and lives, they, they want to waste them. It's an interesting thought. People talk about getting wasted nowadays. They only think of it in terms of their their drinking. Or druggies, whatever. But they want to get wasted. Some of us remember Freddie Fender singing Wasted Days and Wasted Nights. Which brings up a story about you know, one of these oldies stations, you know, having some <laughs> Having some lady call in to say, "I'd like to make a dedication." Yeah, what can I say? I'd like to dedicate to my husband. Wasted days and wasted nights. I'm thinking, man, what a what a song to be dedicating. If you know anything about the song, you know, boy, well, that's a lovey song, lovey lovey dovey song to dedicate. But there's that thought of of wasting away. To the Christian, we're given that that encouragement. To redeem our time. Be redeemers of time. Buy back the time that God gives us and use it for good. Use it for His glory. Use it for the good of others. Use it for the salvation of others. Use it completely and totally for the good and the glory of God. Redeem the time. Don't waste the time. Redeem it. The way, of the, uh, the way of peace, verse 8, the way of peace they have not known and there is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Notice that their hands and their feet are not alone in being given to sin. Even their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. The very place that none of us can read, you know, unless you think you're a, a mind reader, Those mind readers are something else. It's a fakes, but that's, you know, give you all kinds of faces and stuff. We can't read minds, but God can. And their thoughts are full of iniquity. This passage is all about choices. It's all about consequences. They've made themselves crooked paths. They could have made good paths. They made crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. They shall never know shalom in the true sense and fullest sense of the word. What is shalom? It's more than just peace. It's more than just a greeting in Israel. It's more than just a greeting among Jews. It is completeness. It is offering someone the completeness and and the wholeness and the fulfillment of God in their lives. If God is in our life, then we have peace with God. And we have His shalom. His completeness. What is it that Paul tells the believer in Jesus Christ? That we are going to be complete. And that not just, not just going to be complete. We are complete in Him. Because we are no longer at war with Him. Therefore we are at peace with Him. So we are complete in Him. And completeness also means maturity. And as long as we stay in Christ, we mature in Christ. And we grow with Christ. And we grow in Christ. And we grow by Christ. And we grow for Christ. Paul even quotes this passage here uh, that we've been reading to show that all of mankind are sinners from head to toe. Romans 3, verses 15 through 17, he says, "...their feet are swift to shed blood." He's quoting from this passage in Isaiah. "...their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known." Isn't it interesting that in light of all this sin, think about this, isn't it interesting that in light of all this sin, the children of Israel, as they did in verse 1, still believed that the problem was God and not them? That's crazy. Now that this has been revealed, giving birth to sin as the text tells us, should remind us of the words of James. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, where James writes there in the New Testament, James 1, 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, Does God test us? Yes. He tests us for our own good. But God never tempts us. There's a big difference. Verse 14, but each one is tempted. Notice, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, it isn't the devil made me do it. It's my own desire. And then, verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Just like those vipers. Full grown, they bring forth death. You see, handling and dealing with temptations can be done by avoidance. It can be done by fleeing, you know. uh, Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. So the encouragement is flee those things that would tempt you to fall into sin, into, 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 into that area where you separate yourself from the fellowship and love of God, or I should say the fellowship and the benefits of God. But the best process of handling temptations, very simply, the best prof- process is death. It's death. But what I mean by that, so I don't scare any of you, is Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, and but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Be dead to sin. Not alive to sin, because if you're alive to sin, then you want to sin. Which actually shows sure that you're still dealing with the death, in not you? The death of the old nature, which is still not dead, because it's alive now. But you need to be dead to sin. But alive to God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now what does it mean to reign? That's that's kind of a royal word, isn't it? A king reigns, a prince reigns, a queen reigns. Can sin reign in your body? That means who's who's king? <laughs> who's queen in you? If sin is, then Christ isn't reigning in you. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Let Christ be alive in you. You be dead to sin. And then you won't obey its lusts. Because you're dead. A person dead to sin won't obey it because you're dead to sin, but alive. To God in Christ. Well, the next section now deals with the effects of the sins the people are seeing. The ones that they're being shown by the prophet. Verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. Do you notice a tone here? A little bit of a different who's speaking here. Therefore, justice is far from us. Nor does righteousness overtake us. Before it was you're this, you're that, because you were in sin and all. But now it's us. You see a little difference here? Okay. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at as twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. Not the same kind of dead that I was just talking about. This is being dead in sin. Big, big difference from being dead to sin. Do you understand the difference? If you're dead to sin, you won't sin. If you're dead in sin, that's all you do. And you're blind to the truth. Verse 11, we all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. So now, Isaiah isn't just speaking to them on behalf of the Lord and saying, you have sinned, you're separated from God. But now it's the us thing. Now it's, I guess that's the third person. It's it's now our problem, not their problem. Isaiah is identifying with them. These are his people. And so he joins them in seeking after the truth. Since the people of God had no interest in justice, the Lord didn't bless them with it. That's why they say we look for justice there isn't. And why? Because you can't be blessed with it because you don't have it among yourselves. Since they didn't care about righteousness, God didn't bless them with that either. So they're looking for salvation. They're looking, but they're groping around like the world gropes today for truths, you know, wherever they can find it. You know, they go here and they, they run there. And they hit, is anybody speaking truth? Yeah, we'll go here and then we'll go there. But it's funny that when the cross is placed before them, they say, I don't want that. But folks, that's the truth. Jesus died on a cross. For the sins of men. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But what are people looking for today? They want want God. They want blessings. They want all these things on their own terms. They want salvation on their own terms. But God said it best. God did it best. As a matter of fact, Jesus, just in in, in touching upon this, this aspect of them wanting these things and not having it, Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 12 said this. He said, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. What they had, but they never took care of the justice and the righteousness. It was taken from them. So they had no justice. They had no righteousness. They had no light. And when light is taken away, all that's left is despair in the darkness and blindly seeking to escape the condition through one's own strength. Growling and moaning in the same breath. Can you imagine that? Growling, rawr, moaning. You know, all in the same breath. Without remembering. Folks, listen to this. Without remembering the curses given years earlier. To them, when they were still tribes in Israel, or uh, should it, uh, tribes in the wilderness, actually, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, Deuteronomy twenty-eight verse twenty-nine. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gave blessings and He gave curses. Blessings will come if you obey God. If you don't obey the Lord, there's curses coming. It's a simple thought, isn't it? Do this, you'll be blessed. Do this, it'll be cursed. Got the picture? That's pretty simple, not a hard concept to understand. So here's Deuteronomy 28:29. "And you shall grope at noonday. Sound familiar? As a blind man gropes in darkness, you shall not prosper in your ways. Folks, this was a thousand, some years before Isaiah. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually and no one shall save you. All because they were trying to save themselves by their own power. Even by their own ritual. Even by their own tradition. Traditions don't save, folks. Rituals don't save. Ceremonies don't save. But now, but now there is confession of sin and admittance of guilt coming look at verse 12 the prophet speaking now for the people to god for our transgressions are multiplied before you that's a confession for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. Just keep that thought for the next section. But the very fact that they said justice is turned back, righteousness stands so far off, truth has fallen in the street, truth fails, equity cannot enter. That's, that's not truth's fault. Truth is a truth will always stand. It wasn't truth's failing from the perspective of truth being no good. It was the fact that truth was there and they didn't accept it. And they didn't stand upon it. And they didn't live by it. And for, for lack of better terms, they didn't want it. They just wanted them their own ideas, their own thoughts. But it is always a good thing Though the approach may be difficult and even painful, it is always a good thing for God's people to be in the better place of truth after having been checked by reality square in the face. That's what this is. they faced with the truth and now they say we have transgressed. It's not, it's not you, God, that we blame. Now we see ourselves for what we are, transgressors, sinners. They are no longer blaming the hand of God or his heavy ear. Now they see that because of their sin, righteousness stands far afar off. Now, now they're just admitting righteousness is not near because of us. Because we've sinned. But we're now told in verse fifteen that the Lord sees something that displeased him. There was no justice. So now bring that into the picture. Verse The end of verse 15 says, Then the Lord saw it and displeased Him that there was no justice. Look at verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore His own arm brought salvation for Him. And His own righteousness, it sustained Him. For He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly He will repay fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies. The coastlands He will fully repay being the enemies who have come to attack His people. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun, which is the east. When When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against Him. We just sang that tonight, didn't we? When the enemy comes in like a flood, when the power of darkness comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against Him. We sang the standard is the power of His blood, of His blood, Christ's blood. Are you getting the picture now? Not only was the state of the people bad, but there wasn't anyone among them who, could, who would take the lead in getting things right for them. I saw no man. There wasn't one man to lead them in righteousness and in, and in intercession and in repentance before God. They all were transgressors. They all admitted it. But no, was, no one was taking the lead. But, but, but hold on. The Lord not only saw, but He acted. The Lord not only saw, but he acted. Folks, this is a picture of the very redemption of God from the very foundation of the world. He saw that man could not keep his law. He knew that man would never be able to do this himself. And so he puts himself in the picture. This is the goodness of God. This is the mercy of God. This is the grace of God. This is the love of God right here. What we're reading in this place. The Lord not only saw, but he acted. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. God waited to work in partnership through a man, so the the Lord put on his armor and went forth to destroy his enemies, protect his people, and bring glory to his name. That's all of what we just read a moment ago. And is there any connection between this passage and Paul's use of this imagery in Ephesians 6? That's a good question. Because if we only read the New Testament, we see this in Ephesians, you know, where it says about the armor of God. We'd say, well, that's pretty neat. Where did it come from? This is where it came from. Is there really a connection? There is. Paul wouldn't just use it just to use it. There's a connection. By the way, let's turn to Ephesians. We're almost done here. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. (coughs) Excuse me, and let's look at what Paul (coughs) is writing here. He's, he's finishing his thoughts in his letter to the Ephesians. I forget how many times Paul says finally, but he's never final. with A real preacher, uh, Paul is. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Will you notice all the things that we've already touched upon tonight? Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. <laughs> Great passage. All connected to what we just read in Isaiah 59. And here's the connection. Very simple. The connection is this it's God's armor. It's God's armor. What did we read? Paul's saying, the whole armor of God. How many times? A couple of times. Put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. It's God's armor. When we read in Isaiah 59, God putting on armor, He's putting on His own armor. It's His armor. That's clear in Isaiah. In Ephesians, we are now allowed, what is He saying? You take up. You, believer in God. You, believer in Christ. You take up the armor. He is allowing us to use His armor to fight for Him. Interesting. Whereas there was a time when His own people were in the midst of the guilt of their sin, and God is looking around and He sees no one standing up. He says, there will be those who will. And they'll take up my armor. And they'll stand with it. If we don't put on the armor of God and fight for Him, then eventually the Lord will put it on Himself and fight for His glory. God will always go forth for His glory. His glory is above all because of who He is. But his preference, folks, his preference is to work in and through us. Do you remember David when he went down to fight Goliath? Saul wanted him to put on his armor. Man's armor doesn't work on us. What was God's armor? It was a stone. David threw with a a slingshot right right between the eyes of of Goliath. It it was a heat-sinking missile, you know. Or heat-seeking missile. That's because Goliath was a hothead. Knocked him right out, man. Took that guy out, and David went and, and said, "You know, I want to get a, I want to get ahead here. Forget all of that. All right. Just try to make sure you're still awake with me. <laughs> His preference is to work in and through us. God wants to work in and through us." with us using His armor. Put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. It's God's armor. We're His children. We're His people. You see, it, it says in, in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. In other words, exercise your own salvation with fear and trembling. But notice in the next verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It is God who works in you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's God's desire to work in you and through you. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is His. And we can stand. He's our shield. He's our helmet. He's our righteousness. He's our shield. He's our breastplate. He's our belt of truth. He's our peace. We stand on His peace. And He's the object of our faith, the shield of faith. And He's the Word of God. He is everything that covers us in this life. The last thing, and we've got to do this very quickly, but in verses 20 and 21 now. It says the Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. So if you turn from your transgression, now that you have confessed it, turn from it, repent of it, and the Redeemer comes for you. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. And while there is still yet a lot of work to do in the hearts and lives, you know, that God's going to do in the hearts and lives of his own people, Israel, who he's restoring, bringing back into the land. Prophecy is taking place. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Nonetheless, God is going to be there for his people. And who is it going to be? the Redeemer who comes to Zion. Who's the Redeemer? Well, see, the word Redeemer is interesting. It's the word Goel. G-O-E-L, Goel. It is the kinsman Redeemer of the Old Testament. And the Lord God now, uh, now speaks in the first person, declaring that the kinsman Redeemer, the Goel, the one responsible for buying a fellow Israelite out of slavery, the one who is the avenger of blood, the one who is responsible for carrying on the family name, this Redeemer was coming to Zion. Jesus Himself coming to those who turn away from transgression. Jesus, Messiah, Lord, God, coming. Coming to a Jerusalem near you. Coming to you. Those of you who have confessed my transgressions. Lord, I confess them to you. I close with Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Verse 31 as well. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And every man his brother saying know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more that's a good place to end this chapter I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more Christian I want to ask you the question. Are you thankful that God has forgiven you iniquity and remembers your sin no more? Are you thankful? We have a lot to be thankful for tonight. And we have a lot to ask God for. Because we are living in that society of blame. And in the society where people are trying to whitewash the Word of God and, and cover it over. And God is saying, I want my people to stand for me. I want my people to stand for my Word. For, to stand for my truth. To stand for righteousness. Righteousness and holiness to stand for godliness and peace to proclaim that the glory of Christ risen and alive and not let the world or even those within the church who want to, who want to you know just water down what the truth is. God is saying, stand for me. Because I stood for you. Shall we pray?